What is the mark of the beast in the book of Revelation? And uh, in order to understand uh, the mark of the beast, we really need to go to scripture because uh, there are a lot of fanciful ideas about the mark of the beast. If you do a little Google search, you'll find all kinds of theories from barcodes to chips implanted in uh, people uh, under the skin and uh, just a lot more varieties of what the mark of the beast could be or is. Well, um, we're going to go to Scripture and let Scripture answer this question for us. Instead of Googling it, we're actually going to go right here to the source of all truth. And um, in order to uh, uh, understand the topic of the mark of the beast, we need to do a little bit of Bible study in the prophecies. And this is also going to involve a little bit of review from what we have covered. And um, we will spend some time in the book of Revelation, but before we go to the book of Revelation, we're going to go to the twin book of the book of Revelation. And you remember which book that is, right? Which book is that? The book of Daniel. That's right. So we're going to start in the book of Daniel. We're going to look at a prophecy that we already looked at before, but just to refresh our minds. And then we're going to get right into the book of Revelation. And we're going to look at this amazing subject. And there are going to be some other... Um, uh, discoveries that we're going to make in Bible prophecy, not just what the mark of the beast is, but we're also going to look at um, some very, very interesting developments throughout history and even today that the Bible reveals in the book of Revelation. But let's begin by turning our attention to a prophecy that we have already covered in the course of this series, but that we need to review in order to move on tonight. And this is a prophecy that was uh, found in Daniel chapter 7. And in Daniel chapter 7, we have a prophecy where Daniel has a dream. And uh, in that dream, Daniel uh, sees four beasts that are coming up out of the sea. And uh, Daniel is told that these four beasts that he beholds are a symbol of four kingdoms that will arise. And uh, the first beast that he sees uh, was like a bear with two wings on its back, two wings of an eagle. Secondly, in Daniel 7, we have the description of a bear that comes up out of the sea and he's raised up on one side and has three ribs in its mouth. Then the third beast that he beholds in this prophetic dream of Daniel 7 is the leopard with the four wings and the four uh, heads. And then finally, the fourth beast is this ferocious dragon-like beast that has ten horns on its head. And as Daniel is looking at these four beasts, and as he is uh, beholding them and wondering what, 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 what this all represents, he is told in this vision that these are four powers or four kingdoms that will come up. And we already uh, did a little study on this together, and we found out that the four nations that we are looking at here are the very same nations that were also introduced to us in an earlier vision or prophecy in the book of Daniel, all the way back in Daniel chapter 2. And the first kingdom that we are introduced to here in this prophecy is none other than the kingdom of Babylon, the very power that was ruling in the days of the prophet Daniel. And uh, Babylon is represented by the, by the lion with the uh, eagle wings. And then if you trace down history, you'll find out that Babylon was followed by the kingdom of Medo-Persia, represented by the bear, and then the kingdom of Greece followed, represented by the leopard, and then finally the fourth kingdom that came on the scene was none other than, you remember? Rome, exactly, Rome, the ferocious beast with the ten horns. And then Daniel's attention focuses on that fourth beast as he beholds this ferocious beast in prophecy and he beholds the beast with the ten horns and he is told that the ten horns on that fourth beast are a representation of ten kingdoms that will arise out of Rome. And then he is told what the next power is going to do, because as he beholds those ten horns, there is another little horn that comes up. And uh, we can read in Daniel chapter 7, verse 8, what this little horn would do. The Bible says, as I was considering the horns, and there was another horn, a little one, coming up among them, before whom three of the first horns were plucked out by the roots, and there in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking pompous words. 
And we already identified this little horn power, and it's very interesting because we have a variety of indica- uh, identification marks within the prophecy that makes it uh, yeah, actually quite easy to identify which power we're talking about here. It was a power that would arise among the ten horns, so it would come up out of the Roman Empire. It arose after the ten horns, so it arose after the breakup of the Roman Empire. It was different from the ten horns, and we found out that this is not just a political power that we're looking at here, but also a religious power, and it also pushed out three other horns, so it displaced three kingdoms. And there was only one power that came up at this time after the breakup of Rome and that was not just a political power but a religious power and that actually displaced three of these powers, three of these horns, the Vandals, the Hurulais, and the Ostrogoths, and this was none other than Papal Rome. Papal Rome, or the Church of Rome, was given authority by the Caesar of Rome. And so out of pagan Rome comes the second phase, Papal Rome. And we have right here in Bible prophecy this power identified. I believe I shared this quote with you before from Stansley's history. He, uh, he puts it very succinctly what took place. He says, the popes filled the place of the vacant emperors of Rome, inheriting their power, prestige, and titles from paganism. The papacy is but the ghost of the diseased Roman Empire sitting crowned upon its grave. And so that's just a little bit of review of what we've looked at before regarding the prophecy of Daniel chapter 7. And I'm not alone standing here tonight with this particular interpretation that I'm sharing with you. As a matter of fact, there is a whole line of reformers that, uh, have, pre- that have also made these uh, same predictions regarding Daniel chapter 7, that have identified in Daniel chapter 7 the Antichrist power as the papacy. Among others, Wycliffe, Tyndale, Cranmer, John Bunyan, even Sir Isaac Newton at a later stage of time, George Whitfield, Jonathan Edwards, and even Charles Spurgeon pointed to the Pope as the Antichrist based on these prophecies that we are examining together. Well, then we made a transition into the book of Revelation, and uh, John wrote the book of Revelation when he was on the island of Patmos in the first century, and when he writes about the, 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 the things that he beheld, in one of his visions, in one of his prophecies, he writes about a beast coming up out of the sea. And we have already learned in the book of Daniel that a beast is a representation of, of some authority and, 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 and power, some political power. And now we're again introduced to another power coming up on the scene. And when you look at the identification marks of this power that John beholds, you see the link with the prophecy in the book of Daniel. This is found in Revelation chapter 13. And we already looked at this on an earlier presentation, but this is just a little bit of review as we get into our, our content tonight. In Revelation chapter 13, verse 1, it says, I saw a beast rising up out of the sea. And take notice of the uh, description of this beast in verse 2. John says, now the beast which I saw was like a what? Like a leopard. His feet were like the feet of a bear and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. And the dragon gave him his power, his throne and great authority. Now, again, what do we see? We see the the very beasts of Daniel chapter 7 amalgamated in this beast of Revelation chapter 13. These are clearly connected prophecies. And I talked earlier about the principle of repetition and enlargement, right? A prophecy is given, and then another prophecy is given that builds upon that first prophecy, and another prophecy is given that again builds upon the last prophecy. And each time there's a little bit of repetition, and then more information is given. And so here we see, here we're brought to this power, the, the, the rise of the Antichrist. And Revelation 13 basically continues off uh, uh, describing the very same power that uh, the little horn, that, that was described by the little horn in Daniel chapter 7. Revelation chapter 13 verse 7 talks about this beast power and it says it was granted to him to make war with the saints and overcome them. Just like it was said of the little horn that he would make war against the saints in Daniel chapter 7. Now it says of this beast power in Revelation 13 that that he would make war with the saints. This is none other than papal Rome during the dark ages. Now, we also have a time prophecy mentioned in Revelation chapter 13, and it tells us that the beast was given authority to continue how long? 42 months, 42 prophetic months. Now, in Bible prophecy, as we have discovered 
previously, um, in Bible prophecy, one prophetic day equals one literal year. You remember that? And uh, so when you take that period of 42 prophetic months, which uh, is uh, 1260 days or 1260 years, then this fits exactly with the time period that the papacy ruled during the Dark Ages. And uh, uh, really, when you look at it, the only way that the Church of Rome could really rule over people was when they had the military um, uh, force behind them. In other words, when, they had, when, when the church was connected with the state, when the church and state combination, uh, that what, it was actually that that brought about the persecution of the Dark Ages. And Fagilius ascended the papal chair in 538 under the military protection of Belsarius. From, so from the year 538, now the papacy had the military backup to enforce its dogmas and a time of great persecution broke out. And this lasted from 538 to 1798, exactly according to the prophecy in Revelation chapter 13. 1260 years of papal persecution. Well, what happened in 1798? Well, in 1798, Bruce made his entrance into Rome, abolished the papal government, and established a secular one. So the Pope was taken into captivity, and so the connection, the combination between church and state was now broken. Okay, so up till now, this is basically review of what we've covered before. And now what we're going to do is we're going to continue in the prophecy of Revelation 13. And what is coming is very, very exciting uh, and very, very relevant, especially for this nation, the United States of America. So hang in there. Okay. Revelation chapter 13 so far has actually shown us a prophecy that is significant um, and that is describing the events of the old, what we could call the old world, Europe, right? The European uh, events. We've looked at the Roman Empire, Babylon, you know, that's the Middle East. So Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome. And, and, and then the, the focus is, is, is kind of moving from the Middle East more to, to, to the European continent where you have the breakup of the Roman Empire and then the little horn coming up, the papacy that is ruling over the nations of Europe. But as we now move on, you see that the focus is now broadening and, and, and it's, it's spreading now across the earth as we get further into Revelation. Revelation chapter 13, because I want you to take notice, and you can look it up in your Bible, or you can follow along on the screen. I want you to take notice what it says next. As this first beast goes into captivity, there is a new beast that comes on the scene. The Bible says in Revelation chapter 13, verse 10, the following. He, and this is regarding that first beast, the, the Antichrist, the papacy. It says, he who leads into captivity shall go into captivity. He who kills with the sword must be killed with the sword. Uh, here is the patience and the faith of the saints. Okay, so, so it seems as if this first power, the papacy, has had its day, it's had its time, and now he's gone into captivity. The one that was leading others into captivity is now the one that goes into captivity. He's now kind of off the scene for a moment. He comes back. We'll get to that. He'll come back. But, but for a moment, he's off the scene. And then John's attention is drawn to a new beast that comes up out of, not the sea this time, but the earth. Take notice of this. Revelation chapter 13, verse 11. It says, Then I saw another beast coming up out of the what? What does it say? Out of the earth. And he had two horns like a lamb and spoke as a what? Spoke like a, like a dragon. So our attention is now drawn from that first beast that came up out of the sea to the second beast here in Revelation 13 that comes up out of the earth. Now, um, do, do you remember, and, I, and I, I think I mentioned this on an early night, do you remember what the sea represents in Bible prophecy? Sea represents in Bible prophecy, or water represents in Bible, uh, Bible prophecy, multitudes of people. We actually have this expression in the English language, right? A, a, a sea of people, right? Lots of people. And in the old world, in the European continent, it was, there was lots of people. And out of this mass of people, these, these nations were coming. Uh, and now our attention is drawn to another place, a place where there are less people at this time, a scarcely populated place where another beast is coming up out of the earth. 
Now, the Bible also tells us here that he had two horns like a what? Like a lamb, and he spoke like a dragon. Now, the word lamb appears uh, more than 20 times in the book of Revelation, and it's interesting that lamb is always referring to, or in, in, in all of these occasions besides this one, it's referring to none other than Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God. Amen? So he's the lamb. Now, at this, in this particular instance, when it's describing this beast or when it's describing this nation, it is associating this new nation as a lamb-like nation, a lamb-like nation, especially in its origin here. And, and, and that would, we could deduct from that that it's talking here about some nation, some Christian nation that is coming on the scene in Bible prophecy. Now, what other indications do we have here uh, in, this, in this prophecy, in this verse? It's interesting that it says that he had two horns like a lamb, and those horns don't have any crowns. When you look at the description of the first beast in Revelation chapter 13, it says there were ten horns and there were ten crowns. And this symbolized the authority that the papacy had over the kings and kingdoms of Europe. This second beast that comes up has horns but no crowns. In other words, it's a nation without a king. So a nation without a king uh, that is lamb-like or Christian in its origin and that is coming up or, or, or gaining significance around the time that the first beast or the papacy goes into captivity, which was 1798. So a nation coming into significance around 1798 that has Christ-like principles and that doesn't have a king. Interesting. Okay, well, what else do we know about this, 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 this nation? Uh, here, I just mentioned it again, coming up out of the earth, unpopulated area, Christian nation, lamb-like, horns but no crowns, no king, gaining significance when the first beast goes into captivity around 1798. I believe that these identification marks are pointing clearly to a particular nation that was indeed gaining significance around this very time. And there are not a lot of options. I see you're smiling. There are really not a lot of options right now. We're really talking here indeed about the United States of America. I believe the United States of America has a place in Bible prophecy, and it's right here in Revelation chapter 13. It was the very nation that was now, that was now gaining significance as many of the Many people in the old world living in Europe were now making their way to the new world, what they refer to the new world, the United States of America, in order to, in order to live out their faith according to their conscience. They were seeking for freedom. They were seeking to live by the, by, 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 by the word of God. And it was very difficult in Europe under the suppression of, of both the papacy and the kings of Europe. And so they were looking for a new nation, a new place. And, and, and there's this nation that is rising up in a, in a relatively unpopulated area, a nation that is rising up that now has Christ-like principles. It's an open nation to, to many people that are seeking for religious liberty. And, and it's interesting that, it, it, that, that this prophetic picture in Revelation chapter 13 is showing us basically the historic flow from the attention being on the old world and now on the new world. And um, this indeed, this nation has been a, a safe haven for many, many people that were seeking for religious liberty, that wanted to establish a country that would not be ruled by a pope or a king. Amen? And uh, it's interesting because when you look at the, uh, the description or the very foundation that this nation was built on, it was a government of the people, by the people, and for the people, uh, quoting the words of Abraham Lincoln. And when you look at the very um, description of Protestantism, uh, we know that Protestantism sets the power of conscience above the magistrate and, uh, and the authority of the word of God above the visible church. And so this nation was really built on those principles of, of Protestantism and of a government of the people, by the people, and for the people. Well, when you look at the Constitution of the United States of America and you look at the Bill of Rights and you look at Amendment Number 1, what does it say? Congress shall make no law respecting the establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. Now, these kind of statements, they have a history. 
These kind of statements have come about because of things that have been observed in a different place, right? And so they realized that this was, that we, we need a country where, 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 where that freedom can be given. And uh, when you look at the uh, Declaration of Independence, it says we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So clearly, in the establishment of the United States of America, we find the very principles of religious liberty, something that was not existent in the old world in Europe, and therefore they were seeking it in a new place. But the Bible tells us that things will change, that this nation will not always be uh, the nation that will give that religious liberty as it has done. As a matter of fact, Revelation chapter 13 brings out something startling as you continue to read uh, the next verse. Revelation chapter 13, verse 11 and 12. Let, let's look at it again. The Bible says, Then I saw another beast coming up out of the earth. He had two horns like a lamb, and spoke like a dragon. You know, that's interesting. Have you ever seen a lamb and then you approach the lamb and you expect that, you know, he's just gonna, uh, he's gonna be this innocent little lamb and then, and then the lamb opens his mouth and suddenly it's the voice of a dragon? <laughs> you know, th this must be startling for, for, for John to look at, a lamb-like beast that speaks like a dragon. So lamb-like in its origin, but things would change. The voice of this nation would change. And then it says, and he exercises all the authority of what? of the first beast, right? All the authority of the first beast in his presence and causes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. So the Bible is here predicting that though the, 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 the papacy went into captivity in 1798 and seemed to be off the scene, that this power will come back and it will come back with a force and it will gain significance in the world because of the support of a nation and that nation being the very nation where we are right now, the United States of America. The United States of America, the second beast in Revelation chapter 13, the lamb-like beast would then speak as a dragon and what would he do? He would cause all those in the world to worship who? The first beast. Very interesting. What we're actually looking at here is, again, a repetition of history. Because how did the first beast actually gain power? Well, it was only one way, right? It was because the state was backing up this church. And what the, what the Bible predicts is that something like this will happen again, that again, church and state will be united together. Well, whenever you unite church and state together, there is basically only problems that come out of that. There's nothing good that comes out of that. History reveals that there's nothing good that has come out of the unity between church and state in the past. And so um, I, I don't believe anything as good, good is going to come out of that in the future either when these things, when these two are united. As a matter of fact, it's interesting to note that in the Bible, in the book of Matthew, Jesus says something remarkable. At one point, he is tested by the religious leaders of his day, and they come with a denarius, and they ask Jesus uh, whether or not... Uh, people should pay taxes to Caesar. Caesar was the ruling power in the days of Jesus. Uh, Caesar was, the, was, was, of course, the emperor of the Roman Empire under which, uh, which ruled Judea at that time. And so they're asking Jesus, should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? And Jesus, he says, okay, bring me a denarius. And he gets the, a coin, the denarius coin, and uh, he holds it up and he says, whose image and inscription is this? Pointing to the coin. And the people, they answer correctly and they say, yeah, it's the image of, of Caesar. And then he says these remarkable words. He says, render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. So what he is doing here is clearly separating state matters and religious matters. Are you with me? He's saying, okay, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. You know, he, he was not against paying taxes and being a good citizen, but separate that from giving what you need to give to God. And so Jesus is very clear. Jesus did not come into the world to bring about a political revolution. Are you with me? 
He did not come about to bring, a, to bring about a political revolution. He was proclaiming another kingdom, a different kingdom, God's kingdom. And so whenever in history we find uh, uh, religious powers seeking uh, political power, well, the, the, the result has not been good. The Dark Ages are, are, are we have a chapter in, in, in church history, we have a chapter in, in the history of the world, the Dark Ages, that shows the results of such a combination. Sadly, the Bible predicts that this combination will return before Jesus comes again. There will again be a nation, and, um, and more than one nation actually, but the leading nation will be the United States, the second beast in Revelation 13, that will enforce the power of the first beast, the papacy. Well, as this is taking place, it's interesting to note that there are many churches that are now uniting together and seeking to gain a political voice in our world today. And uh, in order to, be, uh, to, to gain that political voice, a lot of uh, denominations and churches are actually uniting together to do that. And um, uh, this is actually something interesting, uh, the Joint Declaration of Doctrine of Justification that was signed on the 31st of October, 1999. Now, this seems like a long time ago. This is 20 years ago. This is two decades ago. But it's interesting that what happened there in 1999 has really led to a movement throughout the last two decades, a movement throughout the last 20 years of many different churches coming together and uniting in order to gain political significance in the world. And um, here it says, uh, this is actually taken from uh, a paper that was written uh, after they had this meeting there on the 31st of October, which is interesting. 31st of October is Reformation Day. That's the day that uh, um, uh, we remember that uh, Martin Luther took his 95 Theses, uh, which was a, uh, basically a rebuttal of what the church was doing, the Church of Rome was doing, and he nailed it on the church door of Wittenberg in 1517 on the 31st of October. And so here, this is now 482 years later, on, in 1999, on the 31st of October, on that day they met, and it says, it says this in, that, in the paper that was written about this uh, gathering. It says, 482 years ago, Sunday, the blunt-speaking monk Martin Luther nailed his legendary attack on the Catholic Church practices to a, door, a church door in Germany, an act of conscience that triggered the Protestant Reformation, the wrenching division of Western Christianity, and more than a century of religious wars that killed hundreds of thousands. On Sunday, the heirs of the acrimony and fracture, the leaders of the modern Lutheran and Roman Catholic churches, signed a document that officially settles the central argument about the nature of faith that Luther provoked. The agreement declares in effect that it was all, listen to this, a misunderstanding. Oh really, was it a misunderstanding? Well, I think uh, Martin Luther would turn in his grave if he heard that. It was a misunderstanding? A misunderstanding? I mean, what he was um, rebel or what he was basically seeking to reform, the very things that he was opposing was based upon his understanding of the scriptures. He was studying the scriptures and seeing the need for reform. He was seeing the atrocities that were committed in the name of God through the papacy, through the church. And so he was um, acting from his conscience and acting from the spirit that, that propelled him through the word of God to bring about a reformation. And now it's called a misunderstanding. Well, and again, this is two decades ago. And since we have now moved into the 21st century, uh, I, you know, I don't have the time tonight, but I could share with you so many instances where churches have come together in order to form an ecumenical movement, in order to form a unity so that they can be more influential in the political world. And it's happening in Germany, and it's happening throughout different countries of Europe, and it's happening very much here in this nation also in the United States of America. Now, um, when you look at the, uh, the, the, the unity that they're seeking to create, um, it is not a unity that is based upon the scriptures and the teachings of the Bible. As a matter of fact, uh, oftentimes the ecumenical movements that you see taking place are led by the Church of Rome, and the Church of Rome has not changed its doctrines. 
The very doctrines that they held during the Dark Ages are the same doctrines that they hold today. Um, one of them being salvation that is only in the frame of the church. Salvation is only within the church, the established Roman Catholic Church. Um, confession of sin is to the priest instead of to Christ. This is still something that they very clearly teach. Uh, prayer is to be made to saints. Uh, the false teachings like purgatory that we talked about earlier, the immortality of the soul, uh, Sunday sacredness. These are all the teachings of Rome that still are fundamental to the way they operate as a church. And when Protestant churches align themselves with the Church of Rome, they have to be very clear that the Church of Rome is not going to budge when it comes to doctrine. They're not going to budge when it comes to doctrine. And so we're seeing these, these things take place. And, 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 and what should it do for us as we see these developments within the world? It should cause us to go back to the Bible. Amen? It should cause us to go back to Jesus, to seek the word of God and to, to allow the spirit to lead us and guide us in our understanding. And what we should be promoting very strongly as Christians is the separation between church and state. We should be promoting as Christians religious liberty for everyone. You see, the moment that the church tries to, to, to align itself into political uh, uh, agendas, things really go wrong. And Jesus was very clear, give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and give to God the things that are God's. Well, uh, this quote is taken from the great controversy. I think it sums it up so well. It says, there are but two religions in the world, said Olivetan, the Protestant. The one class of religions are those which man have invented, in all of which man saves himself by ceremonies and good works. The other is that one religion which is revealed in the Bible and which teaches man to look for salvation solely from the free grace of God. And we really have to make that decision. Where, 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 do, where do we want to be in our faith life? Do we want to follow ceremonies? Do we want to go through procedures in order to gain the acceptance of God? Or do we want to rest in the salvation that has been wrought for us in Christ Jesus? Now, that doesn't mean that, 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 that there are no good works. As a matter of fact, good works come out of that relationship with Jesus. But it's not the good works that earn our way to salvation. Amen? Well, look at Revelation chapter 14 now. In the light of what we've studied so far, we're going to go back now to those three angels' messages that I've referred to earlier. And this has kind of now set the stage for us. So what we've done so far, we've, we've looked at the prophetic picture of Revelation chapter 13. We have the first beast being the papacy that ruled for 1260 years. And then we have that second beast coming up, uh, the lamb-like beast, the United States of America. But then this beast, this beast starts speaking like a dragon and enforcing the power of the first beast. In other words, on the prophetic horizon, my friends, we are going to see changes within this nation. This nation is not only always going to be the, the place of refuge for religious liberty. This nation is not, according to Bible prophecy, not always going to be the place where one can um, live out their faith according to the dictates of their conscience. According to Bible prophecy, there's going to be some change that is going to happen. And it's going to be this nation that is going to lead out in the world to enforce the power of that beast that had a deadly wound in 1798, but that deadly wound is going to heal. And so again, church and state will be coming together. You might think to yourself, yeah, but how is that possible? Because this very nation stands for the very separation of church and state, and that's true. But how long? How long? Prophecy predicts that there will be changes that will be taking place. Now, now look at Revelation chapter 14 and how this prophecy of Revelation 13 basically ties in to these three angels' messages that we read about in Revelation chapter 14. Now, we're going to go over the first two that we've already read and looked at on earlier evenings, and then we're going to get right into the third angel's message, which is going to be um, uh, bringing out the mark of the beast in Bible prophecy, okay? But let's go first to, let's read again this first angel's message in Revelation 14, verse 6. And the Bible says, Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God, give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. So the first angel's message is the message of the gospel that is going to go into all the world. Every nation is going to hear the gospel. 
And it's a call to fear God, to honor God, and to give glory to Him, to remember that He is the one that made the heavens and the earth. He is the one that created us, and our loyalty and our worship belong to none other than to Him. That's the first angel's message. And, and it says an angel brings the message, but this is only a symbol because an angel is only a symbol of a messenger. And so really the message needs to be given by human beings. It's a message that we are all called to give on, to, to receive into our hearts ourselves, and then to give on to others the message of the gospel. And these, these messages are the final messages to go into the world before Jesus comes again. And Revelation chapter 14 wraps up with the second coming of Jesus Christ. But first, there's this message, this number one message, the gospel going into all the world. And then there's a second message in, in verse 8. And it says, And another angel, or another message followed, saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, that great city, because she has made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. And the second angel is exposing the darkness. It's exposing the error within Christianity and within the world. Whereas the first angel's message is exalting the gospel and calling people to fear God and give him glory and worship the creator, the second angel is saying, beware of the confusion that is out there. And that's why I think it's very important to, in order to be a faithful uh, preacher or a, a faithful Bible student, we need to recognize that, that we need to bring out the light of the gospel, but we also are given the responsibility to expose the darkness. Okay? And, and the second angel's message says, beware, because there is confusion, and it's called Babylon here. And this is not some literal city in some literal place, though there was a literal Babylon, a city called Babylon uh, in the Middle East at a certain point of time in history, but this is actually a symbolic picture that is given here. Because Babylon throughout the scriptures was always the enemy of God's people. Babylon was the place where there, were all, there was always confusion regarding, re, 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 regarding religion. As a matter of fact, the Babylonians had, of course, their, their, their other gods, their false gods, and, but the Babylonian influence later came within the church. And so there's this benumbing of the senses, there's the confusion of religion that is summed up by Babylon, but the Bible says that Babylon is fallen, is fallen. And so we need to call people away from, from systems that, that, that do not exalt God, but rather distort the picture of God. And there are systems that, that, that are in religion that cause people to become, in a sense, spiritually speaking, drunk. They're confused about the nature of God and the character of God. So that's the second angel's message. But then we move into the third angel's message, which really brings us also uh, to our very subject today on the mark of the beast. Take notice of the third angel's message here in Revelation chapter 14. It says, Then a third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and his image, and receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand, he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. Now, before I read any further, it's interesting to note that, that, that Revelation chapter 14 and the third angel's message is, the most, is the, the, the most earnest warning that I can think of in the whole scripture. Really, from Genesis all the way to, to the book of Revelation, this is one of the strongest, if not the strongest, warning that we read about in scripture. Because God wants to, us all to know that there's going to be a deception in the last days, there's going to be a beast and he's going to enforce a mark and he wants none of us to receive the mark of the beast. And so he uses very strong language. It's almost like, you know, when you have a little kid and, and they're making their way to, to, to the road and you see the truck coming, right? And you're standing at a distance. What are you going to say? Hey, please come over here. No. What are you going to do? get out of the way, right? You're going to give the strongest, you're going to use your, your, the loudest voice in order to make known to that child that they are in danger. And it's like God doing the same. He's saying, this is the last message. Don't receive the mark of the beast. Don't receive it. And, he said, and with very strong language, he says, don't receive it because the mark of the beast is going to be given either on the forehead or the hand. And you know what? This is interesting. We'll get back to this in a moment. But, but this indicates that, 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 that it's, it's not talking here about a literal mark that you're going to see, like a tattoo on your forehead or your hand. This is actually language that is derived from the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, we are told, God told his people that they were to bind his law 
around their foreheads and on their hands. And he didn't mean that by taking the law and writing it on their hands or on their forehead. He meant, may it be in your mind and in your actions. May it be in your mind and in your actions. And here, the beast wants to control the masses. They want to control their mind and he wants to control their actions. The mark of the beast. Well, we read on, the warning, the strong warning continues. It says, he that receives the mark of the beast, he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels, in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night, who worship the beast in his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. Now, I need to interject something here because yesterday we had a fascinating time together as we studied the subject of hellfire. And I, and I mentioned to you that whenever you have this, these phrases of forever in the Bible when it comes to hell, it's really talking about an, uh, the, the, the consequences lasting forever, but not the actual physical punishing lasting forever. And the same is the case in this passage as well. Actually, the word forever there is the word aeon, which can mean um, till the end of a lifetime or the end of an age. So yes, there is an, an inflicting of, 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 of um, an, an end to the, those that receive the mark of the beast. There is an ending to their life based on the fact that they have separated themselves from the loving invitation of God and they have now received the mark of the beast and therefore they are separated from the very source of life from God himself. And then it wraps up here the, the third angel's message with saying the following, here is the patience of the saints, here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. So the third angel's message does actually this, it is a, it is a message of contrasts. A message of contrast. It says, okay, either you receive the mark of the beast or you are, you, you are among those who do what? According to this verse, who keep the commandments of God. In the end of time, there are only going to be two sides. This is what we've been talking about all the time with our series, War of Thrones, right? There's, 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 there's Christ and there is this fallen angel, Lucifer, the devil, Satan himself. And there are two sides in the great controversy. In the end of time, there are two sides. There are those that receive the mark of the beast and there are those that keep the commandments of God. Those are the two sides that are described in the end of time. Now, now, now in order to understand what the mark of the beast is, we actually, first of all, need to understand what the seal of God is. Because the Bible not only talks about the mark of the beast, it also talks about the seal of God. And the seal of God is given to those that keep the commandments of God. And so either in the end of time we receive the seal of God or we receive the mark of the beast. Now, it's interesting, when you apply the principle of contrast, it's not that difficult to find out what the mark of the beast is. Because if the seal of God are the commandments of God, what do you think the mark of the beast is? Well, it's the commandments of the beast, right? It's interesting because the church of Rome has actually changed the commandments of God. You know that, right? It's interesting. They took out the second commandment. They didn't like it because they have a lot of images. And then they, in order to still have 10, because it didn't look good to have nine commandments, <laughs> so they divided the 10th commandment into two. And of course, they also, they also trampled on the fourth commandment because they, they, they sought to change the fourth commandment from Sabbath to Sunday, right? So, so they are changing the law of God and they're making now their own law, their own ma man-made way. The beast wants his own commandments, whereas Christ has his original commandments, those that we find in Scripture. Well, listen to what the Bible says in other places about the seal of God. This is interesting. In Isaiah chapter 8, verse 16, the Bible says, bind up the testimony, seal the what? Seal the law among my disciples. Okay, so the sealing has to do with God's law being in his disciples. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 16 says, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their hearts and in their what? In their minds, I will do what? I will write them. Okay, so, so the whole covenant, right, of God is that he wants to write his commandments in our minds. And you know what? When you read about the seal of God, the seal of God is only given in the forehead, because that's where we make our decisions and, and God wants to write his law right there in, 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 in our minds in order so that our mind can control our actions and we can walk in obedience to him. When it comes to the mark of the beast, it's either given in the forehead because there will be people that will conscientiously go along with, with this beast power, but it's also given in the hand for those that just for convenient reasons act along with this pressure given by this power. Maybe not convinced about it, but still go along with it. 
And so in the end of time, there are these, there, 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 there's this, this, this message of warning that is given regarding worship. Who will you worship? Revelation chapter 7, verse 1 and 3, listen to what it says again about the sealing in the end time. It says, after these things, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth or on the sea or on any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God. So the description here is that, that it's like the angels of God are holding back the last events. Jesus is about to come. The final events are about to take place, but something must happen first. And so they're holding back the events because what needs to take place? God's people need to be sealed the sealing of the living God. And it says, and he cried with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea saying, do not harm the earth, the sea or the trees till we have done what? Sealed the what? The servants of our God, where? On their foreheads, okay? So in the end of time, right before the second coming of Jesus, God is gonna say, okay, he is mine, she is mine, he is mine, she is mine, he is faithful, she has been faithful, she has put her trust in Christ. And so, Let's seal them, their mind. What do you do? When you seal a product, it's done, right? Right, it's done. And so he's sealing his people and he's saying, okay, they have entered into a covenant with me. And so they are sealed, they are mine. They are servants. And what does a servant do, by the way? A servant obeys, right? So these are the ones that obey. They walk in obedience to God. They keep the commandments of God, not in their own strength, not because they're some superhuman being that are able to keep the commandments, but because they have cast themselves upon the grace of God and, and, and the very spirit of God is at work in them, amen? And so they seek to walk in obedience to God and they are sealed. This is a beautiful message, nothing to be afraid of. God wants to seal his people in the end of time. And you don't have to take, you don't have to be among those that will receive the mark of the beast. If you love Jesus and you follow Jesus and you want to do his will and you want him to write his commandments in your heart, he will do that, he's faithful, amen? And he will seal you so that you are his when he comes again. You see, it's a principle of contrast. God has a seal, the beast has a mark, right? God has his commandments. Well, the beast has his own commandments, but they're changed. God's character is to be revealed in his people. Well, the beast wants to represent his character in his people, right? So it's a message of contrast. Ezekiel chapter 20, verse 12 says, Moreover, I also gave them my Sabbaths to be a what? What does it say? a sign between them and me that they might know that I am the Lord who does what? Sanctifies them. So yes, the law of God is the seal of God, but it's interesting because there's a certain commandment in the 10 commandments that specifically shows who we worship. Because this, the fourth commandment, the Sabbath commandment says, you know, uh, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the, is, 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 is the Lord's day. And what do we do? We remember that he has created this world, that he's created us, that we belong to him. Our identity is right there in the Sabbath commandment. In Ezekiel chapter 20, the same chapter in verse 20, it says, hallow my Sabbaths, and they will be a what? a sign between me and you that you may know that I am the Lord your God. You want to know that I am the Lord your God, God says? Well, keep my Sabbath because my Sabbath is a, is a sign that, that you have said, yes, I'm the creator. I want to worship you. I want to follow you. Listen to this. The Church of Rome makes this statement. They say Sunday is our mark of authority. The church is above the Bible and this transference of Sabbath observance is proof of that fact. They're not holding back. They're saying this is the very mark of our authority. We're able to change God's law. Tradition is above the Bible. But Bible prophecy predicts that in the end of time, there will be a test. And this test will occur when church and state are once again united, when this nation that has once stood for religious liberty will now enforce the dogmas of that revived first beast, the first beast that has come back to life, and will enforce religious practices, causing people to have to decide who they're going to worship. When this beast will enforce practices that are based on man's commandments rather than God's commandments, we will have to take a stand and say, um, okay, I'll go along with it. Or no, I want to go along with God's way alone. I want to I stick to God's word. I want to abide by the word of truth. And my friends, I believe that this test is not far away from us. And I believe that already today, God is urging us to make decisions that will honor him and glorify him and that we can truly say, 
I want to be on the Lord's side. I want to worship Him. I want to be sealed, and in order to be sealed, I want to keep His commandments, not the commandments of the beast, but the commandments of God, the unaltered, unchanged, the beautiful promises of those Ten Commandments found in Scripture. Amen? And God can give us the ability to do that as we come to Him by faith. Well, I want to thank you for coming tonight, and I know this has been somewhat of a, uh, a deep subject, but I believe that, the God, that God has been leading us so far and also has led us in our journey tonight. What we are seeing on the horizon, my friends, is a, a uniting of powers, state powers and church powers, in order to bring about these final events that we're reading about in the book of Revelation. But I want you to leave you with this hope because you don't need to be troubled tonight. You don't need to go from here fearful about what the future is holding because Jesus said the following in Matthew chapter 7. We'll close with this promise. It says, Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain descended and the floods came and the winds blew and they beat on that house and it did not fall for it was founded on the rock. Amen? We can say that our, we, can, we can build our faith tonight upon the rock, Jesus Christ. And when we build upon Jesus Christ, even though a storm is coming, and it is coming, the storm is coming, the, 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 the very events of Revelation chapter 13 and 14 are soon upon us, but that storm, it will blow and it will uh, beat against that house, but that house that is founded on the rock will not move, amen? And our lives can be rooted and grounded on the rock, Jesus Christ. Christ. One last thing before we close here. Back to Matthew chapter 22. I want to close with this story. A, a remarkable story, interesting story. I already alluded and referred to it earlier in the presentation. They come to Jesus and they have this, they have this question, Jesus, should we pay taxes to Caesar? And, and Jesus says, well, show me the denarius. And as he shows them the denarius and he looks at the denarius, he says, whose image is this? And they say, it's the image of Caesar. And he says, give to, give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. But then he adds these beautiful words. He says, but give to God the things that are God's. And I'm thinking like, at that point, you know, they didn't ask any more questions. They just listened to Jesus and, they, and later they, they, they went away. But, but there's kind of like this follow-up question that just begs to get asked when you look at that story. And it's the simple question. It's what belongs to God? Because Jesus has just told us, uh, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. And we know what, God, what belongs to Caesar because the, 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 the coin has his image. So uh, if it has his image, then just give it to him anyway. But, but then Jesus says, give to God what belongs to God. And the question that begs to get asked is, what belongs to God? And I believe the answer would be pretty simple. That which has, has God's image. What belongs to God is that which has his image. And guess what? The Bible begins in Genesis with these words regarding mankind. God says, let us make man in our image. That's the first thing we read about mankind in the Bible. We are made in the image of God, and we belong to God. Amen? We are His. And so, yes, let us give ourselves as image bearers of God. Let us give ourselves to God. And when we are His, He will say, that He's mine. She's mine. Seal them. Write my commandments in their heart. Let them be a generation that will shine forth with, my, forth with my character in these last days before I come. How many of you want to be in that number? Amen? Oh, praise God. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for being with us tonight. Thank you so much for speaking to us through these amazing prophecies. And Lord, I pray that you'll continue to be with us in the remaining evenings that we have left. Thank you for your word. For we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.